Thank you very much, and thanks to everyone who has joined us today for what is the last of this series, Road to the Oval Office. Um, but stay tuned for a whole lot more as we continue to talk about uh, the transition of President-elect Donald J. Trump and the new administration and the new Congress. Um, it is a Republican day today in Washington. I am joined, uh, as always, by Mark Alderman, uh, the chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and today and again, who's been with us uh, throughout the course of the election season from time to time, Jim Schultz. Guys, great to be with you. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Blake, to be here. So we are um, I now on to day two of President-elect uh, Donald Trump's transition, uh, which will continue and, and is continuing um, seriously even as we we host this call. He's going to be in Washington today. He's going to join President Obama at the White House, and um, Mrs. Trump will join First Lady Michelle Obama at the White House in what will be uh, the beginning of many uh, ceremonial uh, actions that will hopefully continue to perpetuate, as we have throughout the wonderful history of the Republic, a peaceful transition of power. But Tuesday's results were, I think, to very many people, um, interesting is an understatement, shocking perhaps an overstatement, but surprising seems to be fair enough right in the middle. I don't want to dwell too much on this call in terms of what happened because the election has come and gone. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about in terms of what the transition will look like. Howard, I'm particularly interested in your perspective. There is There are a lot of folks who are waking up now and saying, okay, now what do we do? Um, and, and what does that mean for, what does that mean for me? People interested in government, people who will be affected by government, um, and people whose interests certainly um, may either be aligned or misaligned with what's going to, what's going to take place in January. I want to talk about that. Um, but before we get to all of that, Mark, I, I really want to begin with you because I think we ought to spend a few minutes just breaking down a little bit of what we saw on election night. Um, and, and I want to start with, with one sort of obvious fact now, but, but, but something that does matter. The polls were wrong. Again, we hear this every time, but as we, or we have started to hear this more and more, I shouldn't say every time, but individual polls, state and national, were wrong. Aggregated polls were wrong. Poll-based forecasts, 538, was wrong. Exit polls were wrong. Everybody was wrong. It, 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 they either you know, underestimated uh, the key demographics of Trump, notably rural white voters, or they overestimated um, the impact of minorities, notably African-American and Latinos. Um, but be that as it may, I thought I'd just get your general reactions to Tuesday night. I think, Blake, that shocking among your choices earlier in the introduction is a good word to characterize what Tuesday night was for a lot of people. Everybody was wrong except Jim, maybe some of your colleagues deep inside Trump Tower. But what everyone missed, Blake, wasn't so much whether more people were for him than for her. What everyone missed was who was going to show up to vote. Hillary Clinton got 7 million fewer votes than Barack Obama. The Obama coalition did not show up for Hillary Clinton on election night. Now, we could talk about why that is, but let's not. Let's just look at what that means. 
What that means is that Donald Trump is the president-elect, and give him his due. He outperformed Mitt Romney among whites, among Latinos, among African Americans, among Asian Americans, but he got fewer overall votes than Romney did, and he won this election because of who did not show up to vote. Howard, I, as we as we contemplate the ramifications of the Trump coalition, uh, which, uh, as we are now starting to see, is is certainly dominated by uh, non college educated whites living outside urban areas, um, concentrated in Middle America. We now see the rift between you know what we traditionally call our kind of bi coastal elites um, and Middle America, bigger than it's ever been. Our gender gap is bigger than it's ever been, I think, and at least in the context of this. What do you think that means as, as President-elect Trump begins to think about his agenda? What? Because now he's got to meet an expectation game for his constituency. I want to talk about issues in a little bit, but let's start with the constituency and that expectation game. Jobs. One word, jobs. That is what won him this election and Mark, I agree, it's turnout, um, but it's the economy. People voted their wallets. And he has got to, as president, give those people that have been left behind, that have suffered job losses, that have wages that haven't kept up with um, economic growth, he's got to give them, he's got to give them something. And that is going to be the central theme of his administration. And may, may I just drop one other number before we let Jim tell us what actually happened? 30%. 30% of those who did show up to vote said jobs, Howard, number one concern. And even more remarkably, 100%, 100% of the electorate said jobs was one of the top three issues that brought them to the polls. If Donald Trump is to unite the country, he has to do it through the economy. And and look, look, there is a reality here. Um, The economy is not that good. There is a limit to what the government can do about it on some level. Hillary and the president, the current president, uh, had to go out and convey they had to run on the economy being so much better than it was and by the way it is a lot better than it was eight years ago but it still ain't too great and he didn't have to sugarcoat and he still doesn't have to sugarcoat and he has a much broader opportunity to build off of that than than hillary would have had uh, jim i want a big part of it Jim, I want to, before we get to that, though, I mean, what we're seeing and to the extent that that this will bear out in in, in what comes next, and you can tell us what comes next, um, is really this notion, jobs, certainly in terms of the category of people that that people were given to check a box, jobs is an easy box to check. But if we get even more detailed than that, it's this notion of economic anxiety that lives in communities where, and now we're starting to see a correlation based on the data, higher unemployment, certainly Trump outperformed Romney, places where there has been slower job growth, to Howard's point, Trump outperforming Romney, I mean, obviously beat Clinton, but Trump outperforming Romney, where there have been slower wage earnings, Trump 
did better in places where there are routine jobs, sales jobs, clerical jobs, things that are jobs that are more likely to be shipped overseas. You saw people flock to Donald Trump. Um, that to me suggests a triumph of though populism over conservatism. Um, and I wanted to first see if you would agree with that, and then B, what does it mean now that Trump has harnessed the folks? who feel this anxiety, and clearly it's real. The data is the data bears that out in terms of what's actually happening in these communities. Again, to build on Howard's point where growth just hasn't been great in a lot of places. Um, but what does that really mean as, as president-elect is talking with his senior advisors and as he's thinking about how to shape an agenda? I've, you know, going back to James Carville, Blake, he said Pennsylvania is a mic basically a microcosm of the country in terms of the election cycle. you got Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between, right? Not so much anymore, not so much in this election cycle, but it was a microcosm of what happened in this election. You had western and central Pennsylvania, red central Pennsylvania, just coming out in droves. Western Pennsylvania, where it's been trending more red, but you have a lot of labor Democrats um, and working-class Democrats were coming out in droves for, uh, for Donald Trump. You don't have to look any farther than Scranton, Pennsylvania, to tell the story of this election. Right. Three points was the difference in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in that in that region, and that really tells the tale. That's a working class area that's struggling and hurting. People's people. It was a pocketbook election for people in that area. I think Howard's right. I think Mark's right. But I think Howard really struck on it in talking about the economy in places like Scranton, Pennsylvania. So where do we go from here? I think you have to, you know, unlock the handcuffs on the economy, right? It's going to be, it's been all about regulatory reform, unlocking the job-killing regulations that Trump talked about during his campaign and doing it in such a way and being successful at it going forward. I think, uh, Mark, we talked about this earlier, where this presidency is going to be determined upon whether, you know, he can get this economy going in the direction that the, you know, the populist voters came out and the reason they came out and voted for him. But we have some interesting challenges here. And I, Mark and Howard, I want to get both your takes. But Mark, let me come back to you. Trump made some very interesting declarations, economic declarations in this race, declarations that would, I think, based on what lots of economists would suggest, would do the exact opposite from growing the economy. He declared that as soon as he was elected president, he would say that China is a currency manipulator. He would impose a 45% tariff on Chinese imports, a 25% tariff on Mexican imports. Um, the cause and effect of that um, is certainly um, a growth in inflation. And we're beginning to see information today where the markets are betting on higher interest rates and inflation. Um, everybody makes promises in campaigns. Rarely do we hold people truly accountable for what they achieve specifically. But in terms of the economy, what, from what you heard from Trump during the election to how you see it bearing out, what do you think? Are we pushing all that aside and going in another direction? Or are we going to have to deal with some of that? I think, Blake, what we need to do with President-elect Trump is try as best we can to separate the signal from the noise. He was the noisiest presidential candidate in American history. But there was a signal in there, I think, of sorts. I think that some of what 
he said was just noise. We're not banning Muslims. I don't think this wall's even getting built. A lot of it was noise. The signal on the economy, to your question directly, I think was trade. He's going to take a hard, hard look at. I think infrastructure, he's going to do his best to get something done. And I think that it's less scary than it may have sounded during the campaign, not only because promises are made and forgotten once elected, but because, as Howard knows from his long service here, as Jim is about to learn, it's a lot harder to do those things than it is to just say them. And he doesn't get to do a lot of it, even what you cited, without Congress. And yes, Congress is now, still, was before, all Republican. But the Democratic minority in the United States Senate is a major factor in Trump's economic success going forward. And I think we're going to see more infrastructure and less anti-China rhetoric going forward. Howard, what do, what do you think? I mean, as you're, you, you have seen this from so many unique vantage points. You've seen it from the transition vantage point. You've seen it from managing an economic crisis vantage point. We are certainly not in an economic crisis in the same way we were uh, coming into the Obama presidency where, where, you, where you were. Um, but there is a lot of anxiety, back to my initial point, anxiety that fueled a Trump victory. And while it doesn't fall into the category of crisis management, Trump is going to have to deliver in ways that I'm not sure he fully articulated during the campaign. Is the solution punishing companies who take jobs abroad? Is Or is it something different, to Mark's point, something more traditional that we, we heard in this campaign? I mean, I think it's an advantage that he didn't fully articulate <laughs> during the campaign, excuse me. I mean, what, look, I mean, he obviously took strong positions on certain immigration issues, certain trade issues, but he also, he didn't say he's gonna tear up every trade deal, he said he's gonna negotiate the best trade deals in the history of the world. More than anything, I think he telegraphed to the American people that he's a negotiator and that everything's on the table and that he's gonna cut deals. And if nothing else, this is a town that's all about cutting deals. And so, yeah, he's going to have to deliver on some of his rhetoric. But I think fundamentally, things are going to be open for business and he's going to go in and negotiate. Jim, I want to talk about the relationship between President-elect Trump and Speaker Ryan. Um, because the Republicans held the House, no surprise. Um, but certainly we had all discussed um, the, the interesting dynamic during the course of this campaign between the two of them, the challenges that, that the speaker had to, had to manage both through his own constituency of keeping the House, his own political standing, um, and hoping to maintain his speakership. By all accounts, I think we, we think that's probably moving forward. Not a lot of threat there. But he and Trump have have different agenda. They may not have different agendas in the context of what happens come January, but in the course of what their policy priorities are, um, a little bit of difference. I thought you might just talk about based on 
you know, your your understanding of uh, of sort of where Speaker Ryan is, what you think that dynamic looks like. I think having a president elect and then a president Trump working with a Speaker Ryan gives Speaker Ryan a lot of cover, right? So he is Speaker Ryan has a group of thirty or forty representatives in his caucus that are very, very strong conservatives that typically say no to just about everything. I think they can now have an ability with a with a Republican president to bring along some of those folks and give and get and work with the the Democrats to try to really accomplish, you know, infrastructure is the big thing. Tax, Tax reform, reform is yeah. what is what uh, Speaker Ryan wants. There's going to be a lot of negotiating there, and I think it will be a healthy dialogue between the two of them. I think politics will be put aside, and the business of Washington will get going. And they're going to have to work together on things like Obamacare. They're clearly going to take it on. Yes, Mark is absolutely right. The, the Senate Democrats, in whatever legislation works its way through this town, are going to play an extraordinarily important role. Um, uh, but they're going to have to work together. The president can't you know, do away with Obamacare with the stroke of a pen, and there are huge ramifications. They're, they're going to have to get together. And Obamacare is, if I may, a great example of separating out the signal from the noise with President-elect Trump. If you listen to what his health care plan actually was and what he actually said when he wasn't tweeting and being very noisy, he committed to keeping the ban on prior existing conditions. He committed to keeping the ban on lifetime caps. He is not intending to come to this town and take all of that away from everyone. And by the way, neither is Congress, even the most conservative members. I don't know about your Freedom Caucus, Jim, but certainly Speaker Ryan doesn't think that Prior, the ban on uh, pre-existing conditions is going to be is going to be lifted. So, in amongst all the noise, there is a signal that yes, a, a different agenda than President Obama had for eight years is coming to Washington. Absolutely, clearly, unquestionably true. But it isn't annihilation. It isn't obliteration of all that came before. It's going to be a piece at a time, and it's going to be, as Howard said, deals, deals, and more. Look, the forces, the forces of gravity, are going to pull this town together in ways that it gets pulled together. I mean, this is—he's a different kind of president. This is a different time. The result, I think, what was shocking was people waking up and realizing that a guy who was not a politician, who had all this stuff, all this baggage, is suddenly the President of the United States. Um, but actually, given the way the country has trended and the issues we have, it, it's not that shocking. And he, um, he is, and by the way, I'm pretty sure he's the first Republican president who's made campaign contributions to his opponent, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. All this of is, whom he spoke with. Yeah, this is different. 
It's just, yeah. I think I, that you're going to see, as it pertains, go back to Obamacare for one second. I think you're going to see a, a lot can be done, and you heard the states. I mean, when I was general counsel in Pennsylvania, we were looking for waivers from HHS and a number of things, you know, work requirements for able-bodied folks, uh, job search requirements and the like, that we just weren't getting out of HHS in terms of a package. There's a lot that you could do within the framework of Obamacare immediately without repeal and replace. And I think, you know, the legislative agenda, it looks like repeal and yeah, replace. I was going to say. day one, the states can get some relief right away from HHS. Well, I mean, I, I think let's, I mean, let, we also, I think, have to be realistic to politics, that as much as Washington is a deal town, it's also a political town. And there is, there is certainly a constituency, um, especially because of the polarizing nature of Obamacare. Um, the, Donald Trump's closing argument, if you go back and watch, was signal and noise, Mark. It was very clear that he was a repeal and replace Obamacare. That was he had three strong arguments that he made. And smartly, I don't want to. I know we don't want to dwell on what Trump did right or Hillary did wrong. But oh, as we always like to say in politics, Trump closed well, and he closed well because he stayed on message for ten days. A you got an assist from the FBI. Yeah, but well, we don't have to. I, go right. There. I mean, I we mean, that's that's there. what I'm saying. Let's I mean, move I mean, on. <laughs> but my point is, my point is that I think there, there, as we talk about agenda shaping, um, there, it, it is in the healthcare space. Um, the Republicans voted forty some odd times um, to repeal Obamacare. Um, I'll be interested to see if if that really if it really evolves in the kind of thoughtful, nuanced way. I'm not entirely not to editorialize, but I'm not entirely sure that that the constituency is going to allow him that much flexibility. Well, we're going to find out. Yeah, right. And we'll find out. To and I promise it's the last time I'll say it, but to the signal and noise point, President-elect Trump has got to dial down the noise. He is going to have to manage all that noise about Obamacare and immigration and everything else, much of which he stirred up. And I think in the very early going, we've already seen indications that that's his intention. If he does not dial down the noise, then yes, Blake, this is this is not going to come out as rationally as the four of us are sitting here discussing if he can dial down that noise i think there's a chance of getting some some good things done for the american people and on some of these key issues we now have 33 and i'm not sure do we now have 34 is north carolina called yet republican governors north carolina's called okay we have 34 republican governors now it's um you know they're going to have a lot to say about what the Obama, the impact the Obama administration had on the 31 Republican governors of the last couple of years. I think with Mike Pence sitting as vice president, knowing firsthand and having those relationships with governors, I think you're going to see a lot of input, especially on the economy and health care, coming up from the states. Howard, I want to talk about transition planning because this is something people don't, we hear, we hear about it, right? We hear, okay, there's a transition, um, but most People don't really have, at this point, a lot of keen insight into the functionality of transition. What's happening right now? I mean, we we're sort of now that everybody's even, you know, 
Trump's woke up and like, oh wow, like okay, this is this is actually coming together. He's form he's forming a transition team. We are hearing names of short lists, of course, which is all a, a fun par- parlor game for for everybody in, in in politics. But I think it would be helpful just from your perspective and experience. What's happening now mechanically on the transition side? Well, Chris Christie has has been leading the transition um, pre pre election. Um, although I think even even at at that level, there was a point in time where they were not anticipating this result. I, I, look, I don't even think Trump thought he was going to win. I think when the when the lights were down low at Trump Tower late on on Tuesday night, and he sat back in his chair, Jim, I'm sure you have more insight into this than than any of us do. I think he was surprised as anyone to be. To, that he was elected president of the United States. Um, fundamentally, he he woke up and and look, they've reconstituted the transition. They are full speed ahead. What does that mean? It means that you've got a team of people uh, working, um, dividing dividing up by um, different agencies, fanning out across the government. You've got inside the agencies. They are. They have been and are continuing to prepare binders of material on different subjects of key issue areas for the incoming administration. Those are largely um, driven by career staff um, because they're the ones that are going to continue to stay. And the um, outgoing administration (coughs) knows that the incoming administration, in this case, isn't really interested in in their views on... Uh, particular policy, political slash policy issues. Um, so it, it's it, it's a combination, but the career staff plays a huge role in preparing those binders and, and getting issues. And then there are a series of briefings that take place um, across those issue areas for the incoming administration. And, and b- before Jim supplements what Howard said, may I just make sure our listeners. So let me let me let me come back to let me come back to engagement with the transition, Howard, because yeah. because things are things are happening. What does engagement with the transition well, look like? Yeah. So the first thing is who's on the team. Everybody inside these agencies is trying to figure out who is on the team. Who's on the Department of and, and, Commerce transition team. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When you say team, you're talking yeah. about, yep. Or who's okay. on the Department of Defense transition team? They don't know yet. I mean, they're they're beginning to be constituted. There are names that are beginning to be attached to these teams, but, but they're still being formulated. And one person, a transition does not make. Um, and the the staff inside these agencies is running around Scurrying. I mean, it's all—it's all anybody's talking about. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure it out. That's all—that's all—that's all the gossip so is about. Little little controlled chaos, maybe. Yeah, right a little now. controlled chaos, and and then you're trying to figure out who's going to care about what, and how do you appeal to those people based on whatever you're responsible for. Mark, you saw this coming into uh, January of 2009 um, with with President. With President Obama, we've talked about kind of the mechanical side of transition, but there's also sort of an emotional side to transition. There's a lot, a lot of folks now who are feeling certainly a lot of vindication, a lot of 
a lot of enthusiasm, um, including the Trump family. Um, and 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 I want to look at this too from sort of the messaging side of transition. What do you expect over the course of the next couple of weeks for for us to hear out of the Trump transition? Well, I think, Blake, it goes to some of what we were saying earlier about the campaign and promises made. One of the great challenges for any official elect in any office, most especially for the president-elect when the transition is from one party to another, one of the great challenges is to transition not just from the prior administration, but to transition from campaigning to governing. It is a challenge for everybody who's been elected to any office anywhere. You've seen it in your career. I have certainly seen it in mine, especially eight years ago with uh, President-elect Obama. So President-elect Trump right now is trying to sort out who from among those who got him here are appropriate to bring with him into government to actually run the country, and what among all the things he said to get him here is appropriate to bring with him into the White House as a message for his administration. And all of that is very personal because you form foxhole buddy relationships with your campaign manager, for example, with your campaign chairman in this case, for example, with your former campaign manager in this case, for example. And where they all end up is going to be, I think, a good indication of the seriousness with which President-elect Trump is going to take actually governing. And, and I think the message coming out is going to be a more serious and less inflammatory one as well. But this is just different. I mean, this isn't, there weren't very many people in the foxhole. This isn't Obama 08. This is a handful of people. And yeah, those people are getting jobs. I mean, look, if you're Chris Christie or Rudy Giuliani or Newt Gingrich and you mortgaged your future on Donald Trump when the whole world was running the other way, you know, you're, you have a role to play. It, but it's not that big. And that's the challenge for this administration. Staffing up is going to be a huge challenge. They're, they're already way behind the curve. <laughs> well, and, 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 and by all accounts now, and we're starting to see, the Washington Post has one of these fascinating um, you know, oral histories from, from both sides, and you get, you get a sense of, of what people's perspective was on key pivot moments during the campaign. But Trump's campaign was also guided a lot by his family. Um, and, and his son-in-law, we now... You know, our learning played a, a, a much bigger role, including, um, you know, in, in that campaign. Certainly, his family were, were his driving surrogates throughout the course of that campaign, um, and and what all that that will look like um, beyond the the small small group of people. To your point, Howard, who really were concentrated in in the leadership uh, of that campaign, it'll be certainly interesting interesting um, to watch. 
you know, one of the challenges, Howard, that we that we saw the last time we went we went mm-hmm. through this was that we were and you were there in the state of of economic crisis, yeah. um, and the challenge that President Bush had to manage through those final days of his administration. The challenge that President-elect Obama had to recognize that we only have one president at a time, and he said that numerous, numerous times, and then to sort of facilitate the transition of government and the number of just people who are new to government. I think, what, it's 4,000 positions, mm-hmm. or roughly, that that President-elect uh, Trump um, may have to fill. Um, it's just a daunting task that we don't think about. We don't think about the practical implications of that and then what it means. But we're not in a state of crisis this time. Yeah. Um, and so how do, you, how do you transition well? How does, how does President-elect Trump ensure that on day one he's ready, ready to go? Well, you do build... Number one, you make good choices about who you surround yourself with. So that inner that inner circle, yeah, the, the West inner, Wing, the inner circle, yeah. and he is he's not going to be successful if he doesn't if he doesn't do that. And he can't be totally insular, um, or he's not going to be well served. So that that's key. That's a big part of how you transition well. Um, you know, you, you can't. You also can't be all things to all people. Um, and and I don't think he's. I think he's fairly well positioned as far as that goes. I don't think he has got to come out other than Obamacare. Um, I don't think he's, which by the way, isn't going to get done on day one because it's he's not going to take away twenty million people's health insurance overnight. Um, but I, I, I don't see the day one pressure on him being policy making or legislating. I see it being more rhetoric and how he talks and the message he delivers and the direction he takes the country I see it being uh, global how the how he gets the world to understand what's going on here and, and can he bring the international community along in terms of um, what's happening here is absolutely critical I think there I think this is going to be much more complicated in terms of international relations than it even is in terms of the domestic policy. And there's a report this morning I saw on the train down that President-elect Trump has invited the British Prime Minister to come for a visit. So, again, it's day two and it's very early. But the very early indications are, to your point, Howard, that he is endeavoring to set a tone for his incoming administration that is an inclusive and calming one and and the country needs that. And, and just to mm-hmm. add something on, I mean, I think you mentioned personnel. Like, that is absolutely key. He's got to have a world-class personnel vetting clearance operation that gets people um, through the process and into jobs, but people who, who can actually do the jobs. That's... That's really critical well, as well. And I'm sorry, Blake, one more observation in terms of personnel uh, and day one agenda, although it is disrespectful to say that a Supreme Court justice is a personnel decision, but there is the matter of the Supreme Court. Right. And that is something that he is going to have to address early. 
and to get into the weeds for one moment, even though the Senate under Majority Leader Reid, of course, adopted the so-called nuclear option for judicial and other executive branch appointments for everything but the Supreme Court, it still takes 60 votes, which the Republicans don't have under the current rules, to approve a Supreme Court nomination. And it is going to be a very early test of how this is all going to work when we see the candidate that he puts forward and when we yeah, see what Minority point. Leader yep. Schumer does with the 60-vote uh, requirement. If the Democrats drive Majority Leader McConnell to adopting the nuclear option for a Supreme Court appointment, it is going to be a very, very difficult four years, two years and two more with the midterm. If they can get through that somehow early, I think it will bode very well for the ability of this administration to get things done. <clears throat> so on top of the Supreme Court, what else are you keeping your eye out for, Howard, uh, over the course of transition key indicators, a particular position? You talked about foreign affairs. Um, you know, Trump is going to begin to unveil his recommendations in terms of who he would like to put forward for confirmation for, for key positions. Anything that, that you just think is going to be a key indicator of, of Trump either manage, either managing transition well or, or, or beginning to kind of veer, veer perhaps into, a, into, into some difficult territory? Well, do, do the nominations he puts forward make sense? So, for example, staying with the international theme, Secretary of State. It makes no sense for Newt Gingrich to be the Secretary of State, and I don't think he will be. Um, it, no, no sense to me, anyway. Not to this guy. And um, and so, do they make sense? Like, that's what people look for. That's what people inside these agencies look for. It would make sense for Rudy Giuliani, people may or may not like him, but he was a U.S. attorney. To be Attorney General. To be Attorney General. Does that make sense? Yes. If you're working at the Department of Justice... You may not like him. You may like him, but that makes sense. You can live with that. He's a law enforcement guy. He's a he's a he's a lawyer, and he's been a prosecutor. So it's things like that that will be to me what I'm watching in terms of the functionality of this administration. Because by the way, you got to bring the bureaucracy along too, mm -hmm. and that's that's it a a kind of unseen force here in Washington, but. It's going to be a very powerful one because given the fact that it's going to take them a while to find where the bathroom is, given the fact that it's going to take them a while to staff up, the bureaucracy is very powerful. It's always a very powerful force. It's not He's not going to be able to run roughshod over the bureaucracy. He's got to bring them along, and it's all, it's all related. Yeah, I always laugh. I always go back to there are moments like this where you can you – can, find something interesting in pop culture. I remember very early on, early episode of The West Wing, they write where there's where uh, Leo McGarry and Josh Lyman, they're all trying to they're all trying to find a room in the in the West Wing to have a meeting and nobody can find the room. So <laughs> exactly. they just meet in the hallway because nobody knows where anything is yet. That was like uh, and my I first always, day comes yeah, right, too, right, by the way. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, I just I just laughed at that, Mark. What, what are you? What are you paying attention to? Um, uh, key indicators? Anything well, that you're I, just particularly I interested in? Put something on the table that I'm very interested in. That is a very uh, 
sober and serious note. I am optimistic about it, but we can't kid ourselves. It goes, Blake, to your question about campaign rhetoric and, Howard, your point about the Attorney General. What becomes in the early days of the Trump administration with this idea that there should be a special prosecutor to investigate Secretary Clinton? That, I am very hopeful, is not going to happen. That, I am very hopeful, goes <coughs> in the noise and not signal category. And I think the appointment of the Attorney General will be some indication of where that goes. I think the tone with which the new Attorney General discusses his or her position will be some indication. But the best indication would be that it just doesn't ever happen. And that, I think, is something that I, I for one, am them watching and taken very, very seriously. Well, lots to look, lots to look out for. It is, it is only day two. It is, it is very early, but, but certainly all eyes are, are on President-elect Trump, um, his family, and, and the transition, which, of course, we're, we're watching closely and very closely connected to. Um, and so it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting, I think, is perhaps the, the, the most appropriate way uh, to sum it up. Well, look, this actually brings us to the end of our Road to the Oval Office um, series. I think we've had more than almost 30 calls throughout the course of, uh, of this election. We now have had the election, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll think about, for everyone on the phone and everyone who has downloaded and listened to our podcast, think about um, what comes next for us, and we'll, we'll keep you informed um, about that. But it has certainly been um, a, a fast and fun election season. Election night was was not dull, and we're gonna we're gonna have a uh, a new administration. And and for I think Howard, you made the point. Um, not only uh, do we have a Republican president who is given to his opponent and to the speaker, we also have someone who simply has never served um, in an executive or legislative capacity in government before. That is going to be an interesting time. Uh, in, in America and an interesting presidency uh, to watch. So guys, see, look, it's been a lot of fun. This has been great. I hope for everybody who's joined us on the phone um, that you have enjoyed um, our discussions, Mark and Howard and Jim's insights uh, certainly have illuminated me and I hope you as well. So thanks again. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Blake.